This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, I have been reading this series of short stories that that are not in the typical, they're not presented in the typical short story fashion where you might buy a collection of short stories. Uh, this particular author, uh, chose to just publish them all as individual books, and he refers to them as mini mystery series. And I've read some of his other books and really enjoyed them, so when I saw these, I thought, oh, I'm curious as to what a mini mystery is. So I downloaded the first one to see if I found it interesting and, and to, see what it, to see what it actually was. And they're all, all of these stories are about 10,000 words, they're complete stories. There is a uh, sort of an ongoing um, longer story that goes through the, I think there are 10 of these altogether, and I'm on like six or seven. Um, there's an ongoing story that's sort of a relationship story that happens, and then there, each one has a mystery, a, a, a short mystery. And it, it's fascinating to me the way he has chosen to do this because he's publishing them, making them available through Kindle Unlimited, which means you get paid by the number of pages read. He also, I mean, you can also buy them for 99 cents if you're not um, a KU reader. But there aren't very many pages. So if people read one book, he's going to make almost nothing. But if they read all 10, uh, it would do pretty well. Um, but it's it's fascinating, just the idea of doing that as opposed to putting them together in a collection. And then he's also using each of these as lead generation for his much longer books and his more popular series. He's got an, another series of full-length mysteries uh, that I've read and enjoyed as well. I, just, I thought this was an interesting concept and the idea of these really short mysteries, 10,000 words, it doesn't really seem that short for a short story-ish mystery, and probably a third of it is the relationship stuff that goes throughout all ten books. Um, and I just I don't even know if I could do that. Like the amount of brain work that goes into creating such a small story almost seems more than what it would take to do a large one, just because you have to still find a way to deliver certain there's certain elements that you still got to fit in there but you got to do it in really f short amount of time and i'm i've always been in awe of people who could write short stories really i have been yeah i i love like really good short fiction there are people that are just really extraordinary at it and they tend to win awards for their short fiction I mean, these are nice stories. What's, what's, what keeps me reading is that I want to see the resolution of the, the relationship story, which I'm sure will come in, in book 10. But we learn more about the characters with each uh, successive book. And the mysteries are, you know, a, a typical mystery. There's, there's a problem. Uh, the problem is uncovered. And then the investigator 
tries lots of things before he finds something that leads him down the right path. And in this All case, in 10,000 words, that's crazy. Well, that's, that's amazing. But the, they skip the lots of things where they just oh. go and they interview one person and what they learn from that one person is enough for them to solve the mystery. And that's the way they get it done in 10,000 10, words. words. Okay. But it's interesting that you can use that tight a framework and still make the stories compelling to the point where you get to the end and I, you don't you don't read on a Kindle but when you get to a when you read on a Kindle you get to the end of the story and if there are several books in a series you can then skip the back matter which in his case was a lot because he's talking about all his other books skip to the back matter go right to the end and it says the next book in the series is this click here if you want to no, go to the Amazon I... store to buy it I honestly think it's genius. I mean, so there's me as a writer, which I'm like, oh, my God, I don't even know how they do that. But me as a reader, um, I really I just really don't have a lot of time to read. And there is sort of an emotional weight that goes along with getting into a book because um, it's just there's a huge in time and also a uh, mental emotional component like I might it takes a lot of time to read a full-length book and it's just it's gone or then I just never really have a chance to fully get into it because I'm just reading it and stops and starts um, and then the, the 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 emotional weight that comes along with it is getting so sucked into it and then trying to return to real life after and I know a lot of readers are going to relate to that sort of reading fugue state um, that just kind of pulls you away um, but if there were, if I knew going into it that, okay, this is only going to take an hour instead of eight hours, for example, or 10 hours, then it's a lot easier to go, yeah, I can give up an hour. I can do this for an hour, right? I, I don't think I'm the only one. Like there was that, um, that project I worked with, with Serial Box, which is a serialized storytelling where um, the stories are done, the, they're put out one episode a week. And they are each episode, they try and keep them under 40 minutes. And it, the whole idea of it specifically came the guy who founded the company because he fa he was having that problem. He's an avid reader. He loves readers. He super loves thrillers and everything. But he would find himself awake till five o'clock in the morning. And then he'd be useless the next day trying to get his work done. And he was like, what if there were books that, you know, you've got these self-contained episodes like TV episodes where they they have a beginning, a middle, and end all in, you know, a, a bite-sized, commute-sized piece. And then um, the next week you pick back up and the story continues. And, and together they, they make up the whole story. And that's where that idea came from, mm -hmm. and which is great for that. But, like, even for actual Kindle reading stories or, you know, ebook reading stories, I, I, I would not be surprised if there is an existing market for people who would love to read stories in these continuous bite-sized chunks just it's really hard to do as an author and there are a lot of people doing them well so uh you know it's an idea i guess i i think it's a brilliant idea yeah it, it's very clever the author's name is christopher grayson and the series is called the adventures of finn and annie and um, I, I tell you that because when we get into our topic today, which is character names, I'm going to use uh, one of the characters in this series as an example. 
of uh, during our discussion today. But this is this oh. is a fun little thing, and uh, like you, I the thing that I enjoy most about this is I can sit down and for me, I, I'm guessing that of the ten thousand words. 3,500 words are just like back matter, so it's probably 6,500 words. It's about 15 to 20 minutes to read a story. Yeah, I like that idea. And that's nice because the commitment is over. You sit down and you read a story. You don't don't have to pick it up again somewhere. It's just, oh, I I finished that story. That was nice. It's kind of reset my brain, and I can go on to something new. I, I really like the idea of doing the short stories like this and with the Kindle where you can just go get the next one, and it's so... Seamless and easy. Um, I'm surprised more people aren't doing this, and, and maybe they will. Just looking at the rankings for these books, uh, they're ranking really well for yeah. for books of this size, and they were published first published over two years ago. Uh, yeah, so they're, I can they're, I totally they're doing get it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So our topic today is, um, and since I did the chit chat, Taylor, what's what's your clever transition? <laughs> I don't have a clever, clever transition. I just call this topic naming the baby. But um, <laughs> really, we're talking about character names. And um, this is kind of a nuts and bolts conversation. So if we had to put in the classification of writing or story, I'd say this falls under writing. Um, and to me, this is um, it's a bittersweet topic. I, I'm horrible, horrible with character names. I'm horrible with book titles. I'm horrible doing anything in bite-sized pieces. <laughs> so um, I have a lot of empathy for the subject of names and the struggle with getting names right. Uh, names speak so much to things. Uh, um, and so when we were, when I was going uh, with Steve over his material, the subject of names came up because he had a situation in his story that I've never come across before. And um, it gave it gave rise to some serious like I had to really think about like, well, how exactly do you do this? So um, so we had this discussion of names and I'm going to be be cribbing off of my notes for that. Um, but I I found that Steve made one of the same similar mistakes that I do is that he has a lot of name similarities or name pairs in the story where there's potential to give a lot of rise to confusion. And when I wrote them off uh, off the top of my head, we had Melinda, Melody, and Melissa, which are three female characters that, I mean, even I, when I was writing him notes, uh, saying, you know, well, why did Melinda do this? I was often writing it as Melissa. <laughs> like, it, it took me, it took effort for me to keep those three names square, right? And then he had a situation where he had a Chastity and a Chelsea. And he had a Fernando Suarez and a Fernando Martinez, <laughs> And um, and I didn't really have an incredible difficulty keeping these names straight simply because I was into the weeds with him on the story, except for the Melinda Melissa thing. But I knew from experience that we were about to enter very, very dangerous waters. <laughs> so I'm going to read from you um, what. I wrote him, so it's just kind of rough noted out. I told him, I said, I'm laughing because I know what it's like naming characters and how these similarities just seem to have a life of their own. In The Informationist, every main character besides Monroe has a B last name. And there were originally even more B last names, and I never even noticed until someone pointed it out just in time for me to change a few before it went to print. 
And um, not in the notes here, but just a little fun side story is I, I see it show up, this issue with the B names. I see it show up in um, in criticisms of the informationist, but not in the vein of, uh, wow, I guess the author didn't realize what they were doing, but in the vein of, I hate it when authors try and be clever like that. And I'm like, oh, if only, <laughs> if only it had been intentional or clever, but I am not so clever by half. So yeah, it was com- I was completely oblivious to it, did not even notice. So um, in this particular situation, we have four husband and wife combos, four husband and wife combos, and this makes it even a stickier issue than the average book because you can't just go around uncoupling couples for the sake of simplifying names. So I I said my first suggestion would be to focus on changing any and all first name similarities. And I'm saying this to Steve, but this is actually very generalized, applicable straight across the board advice for naming names, uh, learn the hard way. Um, so if you have, if you have a bunch of M names like Melinda, Melody, and Melissa, you got to pick who you want to stay. So if Melinda needs to stay Melinda, then Melody and Melissa are both going to need new and preferably as different as possible from any other existing names in the book names. So, um, we, if, if you've got a Melinda, then you're going to want Melody and Melissa to not only have different, um, syllables, like they're all Melinda, Melissa, Melody, Melody three, Melinda two, Melissa three. They're all three syllable names. So not only do you want to switch up the first letter so that they're not all M's, you're going to want to get some variation there in the number of syllables in their names. Um, And even further, you're going to want to switch up the mouth sounds. So if one of the names is real soft sounding, you want to give the other one something a little bit harsher. Um, And this is because, well, I get into explaining why in a minute, but anyway, um, so that was my first step is like, you want to get as many of the first names uh, as, as varied as possible. And that includes the names of the married women. So even if the married women are um, often going to go by their last names or whatever, you still want to make sure that their first names aren't in any way similar to the first names of the other characters, male and female. So the more characters you have in the book, the more complicated this gets. The more books you've written, the even more complicated it gets. So um, the next suggestion I'm offering is that he has a Fernando Suarez and a Fernando Martinez. And honestly, I mean, I've not discussed this with, with Steve. That, that's just a brain blip. It's not, it was not an intentional choice of names. He probably had no idea that it even happened. But what makes it even more confusing than that the both men have original, that the both men have the same first name is that both of their last names are also um, Hispanic and they end in Nez or the Ez, Suarez Martinez, right? So we want to find names that 
one of them, one or the other can keep the is, the other one's got to have something different. And then I personally, if it was me, I would swap one of the Fernandos out with something very opposite, like Joe, right? Just, and, and what this is doing is making these names distinct. And then, then when we get to the, the married names, and this was new for me, never had to deal with this before. I was like, we need to develop a usage rule for how first and last names are going to be used throughout, and we need to maintain rigorous consistency. And that's really important when naming characters, and trust me, I know, because I write books in which the same characters take on multiple names. So Jill uses just a wide array of names. Jack uses a wide array of names and they switch and they're called by different names from different people in the book. So this is something that I've learned to take very seriously because name confusion is a real problem for creating reader dissatisfaction. So when we look at usage names um, for married couples, right? when we're doing a Mr. and a Mrs., I was like, we need to figure out, oh no, this was just for names in general. This is not even when we get to married couples. So when you're looking at a book, every, everybody's going to have at least two names, right? First and last names. And different stories, different genres have different uh, genre expectations on how these characters are referred to. So in thrillers, for example, it is very, very common to refer to characters by their last names. But this type of usage, it violates dialogue, it violates dialogue norms in real life. So for example, except in some really specific environments like military or law enforcement, we don't typically tend to refer to people we know by their surnames. And especially not when discussing them with someone who also knows them. So if I was talking about Steve to someone else who knew him um, or, or of him, I would just call him Steve. I wouldn't call him Steve Campbell. I wouldn't call him Mr. Campbell. And I definitely wouldn't call him Campbell, right? But fiction violates that rule by often using last names even in dialogue and even among colleagues in a way that we just don't in real life. I mean, real life, yes, it happens in certain settings, military law enforcement, blah, blah, blah. Um, so what you're focusing on when you create this set of usage rules, you're doing it for yourself. You're focusing on clarity rather than reality. So if you have a book where using first names is totally within the genre, then you can do that. If you have a, that's fine, but you have to be consistent in how you do it. This is why you yourself create usage rules for how you are going to use first and last name in your story so that it stays consistent. Um, when you're writing a book that's a thriller where people often use last names. This is a specific pitfall that I've not, this is not in Steve's notes, but it's something that I have spent time considering and that I've advised others in specifically. And it has to do with sexism and the way 
we treat women and men differently. It is, and I've seen this happen, and it offends me, it offends my sense of fairness, where you'll get a story where the the male characters are referred to by last name and the female characters are referred to by first name. And what this does is it sets up a very subtle inherent bias against the female characters because using last names for someone is far more respectful than using first names. So when you have a book in which the la- the, char- the male characters but their female peers are referred to by first names, you are, without realizing it, putting those women a rung down. And this is why you set up for yourself usage rules. It allows you to bypass all that crap and just stick with things consistently. And it it, it is especially dangerous to refer to your male characters by last name and your female characters by first name when you have a lead female character because you are basically stabbing yourself in the foot by doing that. You're shooting yourself in the foot. Why would you do that? You are making your female characters less weaker, less worthy of respect inadvertently. And it's so subtle that most people don't even realize it's happening. They don't realize it's happening when they're doing it, and they don't realize it's happening when they're reading it. And it's only until you start discussing it with them and people start analyzing their own thoughts. And sometimes even when they do analyze their own thoughts, they're like, nah, come on, that's not real. It is. It just is. Just trust me on this, okay? It is a respect thing. And if you do not want your readers to disrespect your female characters, do not inadvertently subjugate them to the male characters. That's all there is to it. So when you are focusing on your usage rules and your your focus is clarity rather than reality, there is an exception. And this is in regards to formality. So just as in real life, you'd ha- you wouldn't have students calling their teacher Bill, for example, it, you're going to come across situations in fiction where whatever usage you've chosen is going to violate formality in a way that it's just going to feel wrong. So even if your usage rule involves calling everyone by their first name, there are some times when they have to be situational, where you have to go ahead and just violate it um, for the sake of realism or not feeling wrong. So the usage rules that you're creating, they're situational to your story and to the style in which the story is told. But in general, it's always safer to err on the side of formality. So you're not going to run into issues where everyone's called by their last name, but you're going to sometimes run into issues by calling everyone by their first name. Now, there's an exception to the exception. (laughs) (laughs) And that's with parents and spouses, especially in spoken dialogue. So no matter how you slice or dice it, it is just not going to work for you to have characters refer to their children or to their life partners 
by their full name or their last name. It is not going to work um, where you have someone go about their, their child, well, Mary, Mary Carpenter or Miss Carpenter, it's just going to be Mary. They're, it's their daughter. You know, you can go too formal on it and you'll run into problems in that, in that way. So the main thing in all of this is you you need to have consistency um and the reason for it well okay with with the whole thing with the formality right it's again going to depend on your story the genre the characters the tone and you may up incorporating a certain level of familiarity into your usage rule so your usage rule could account for that, and then you might just prefer to make exceptions on a case-by-case basis. But the, the whole point in all of this is that no one is ever, ever, ever going to be as familiar with your characters as you are. They're, they're not even going to come close. So imagine you on your worst day, somewhere in the muddle of a 100,000-word draft, trying to remember what you called some third-level character 140 pages back. And that's your reader on their best day. So most readers are going to experience your story once. So until, unless they become intimate with your characters, they're going to be relying on patterns and consistency to remember who is who. And when you violate those patterns, your readers get completely lost. And that's why, no matter how careful I am with Jack and Jill stories to make it insanely clear whose head we're in and to go like overboard in providing clear context clues to know who's talking and, you know, under what circumstances, who is what, whenever names are, whenever alternate names are involved, I just go to extreme lengths for there to be no confusion, there's still going to be readers who can't keep up and who get confused simply because of the name pattern changes. And it doesn't matter how consistent I am, and I am rigorous in establishing usage rules for myself and sticking to them, it's never going to be enough to avoid confusion for everybody because these stories simply won't allow me to maintain consistent naming patterns. The characters, these are characters who go by multiple names, but most of you are not going to have that problem. So when we bring all of that back to this story at hand, if we have a character, Brittany Tortorelli will be the example that I use. If she's referred to Mrs. Tortorelli 90% of the time, and then halfway through the book, someone refers to her as Brittany, it won't matter how many times you've used her full name. It won't matter how clear the context clues are. Half the readers are going to suddenly have no idea who Brittany is because you violated the pattern. And this becomes even more extreme when it comes to side characters. If you've introduced a character as Matt, the sales guy, and then Matt shows up in all of one scene it doesn't matter if you use his first name, his full name, or a, you know, full name plus something else. Readers are going to have no idea who you're talking about 
when you bring him up 50 pages later. So in cases of side characters like that, you have to go even a step further and you have to attach a, let's see if I can pronounce this word properly, a mnemonic, mnemonic. <laughs> I know how to spell it. I don't know how to pronounce it. A mnemonic? Yes, whatever. Um, it's it's a memory device, right? Where there's an image or some kind of um, visual that's attached to a word. So, for example, you can call someone goatee guy on page 10 and never mention him again till page 210. And readers are still going to know who he is because goatee is a mnemonic. <laughs> Goatee is a mnemonic. Okay. If that's the right word. I'm not sure. I'm just guessing. Okay. So the word is spelled M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C. Yep. That's mnemonic. Okay. So goatee is a mnemonic, but there's nothing memorable about Matt. There's no visual that comes along with that. Not even if Matt's full name is Matt Frixel. Okay, well, maybe if his full name is Matt Frixel, because that's so unique. But for most bit players who have mundane names who disappear off the page for a while, you you need a mnemonic. Because when you bring them back, there's just nothing there. So if you call Matt, Matt the sales guy, the sales guy part of it is mnemonic. It reminds the reader who Matt is and what role he plays in the story. And the mnemonic becomes, almost becomes part of their identity, or it becomes part of the name in the same way that goatee guy can stand in for whatever that character's actual name is when there's no way to know what his actual name is. So I'll do that a lot when I don't know what a character's actual, my main character has no way to know what a character's actual name is, but we need some, we need to give him a name to refer to for the readers. I'll do that, you know, goatee guy or, you know, backpack guy or, or whatever. That's a mnemonic and it stands in, also stands in for their real name. But if you have a real name for a small character, small playing character who, you know, disappears off the page for half the book and then comes back, then you need something else besides their name, like sales guy or, you know, restaurant server, whatever it is that that will allow the reader to understand who they are. So going back to the issue of um, married couples names, that was something we also ran into here. And this was the first time for me of how do you actually refer to married couples? And you can because there's a familiarity where the the wife or the husband is going to refer to their spouse by the first name. That That's just the way it is. It's going to be weird if the wife is calling her husband Charles Rudd or Mr. Charles Rudd. It's going to be Charles, right? So this is something you have to factor into your usage rules. And the usage rules that I've established for myself, and I was not super consistent in the earlier books. And when I go back and I read them for this um, book club thing, um, it, it like, stabbed me like ugh, it was painful to see the 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 inconsistent violations of the usage rules but the way that i work it now is um all characters are referred to initially first time around by full names first and last name that is often the one and only time we will see them referred to by both names 
um, or in Monroe's case, all three names. Um, when in narrative, the narrative itself will always refer to all characters in my thrillers by their last names. In dialogue, when they are characters who are familiar with each other or who know each other, they will refer to each other by first name. But if they are referring to someone that they're not familiar with, it'll either be first and last name, or if that character hasn't shown up for a while on the page, um, well, so it'll be last name, but if the character hasn't shown up on the page, it'll be first and last name. Because in real life dialogue, we will often refer to people that we're not super familiar with by first and last name. It's not unusual and it works both ways. So those are my usage rules that I stick to religiously. But if I was doing a book that was not a thriller, I would, um, I would have to create new usage rules so that it was consistent. And if it was more of a, um, uh, like a, oh, what kind of novel would it be? Like a, I want to say a book club novel, but that's not really right. Um, just a mainstream, mainstream fiction. Um, that's not a lot of action or whatever, I would probably switch to where I referred to characters by their first name, male and female equally. But in dialogue, when referring to other characters, I would use the same usage rule of if it's someone they're not super familiar with, then they would do first and last name. And if it's someone they were familiar with, they would use first name. And if it was someone for whom they needed to uh, adhere a certain level of respect, then it would be Mr. or Mrs. and then last name. And I would just be consistent. And that is the most important thing is consistency, because it is those patterns, those consistent patterns that allow your readers to hang on to and remember who it is you're talking about. And if you violate those patterns halfway through the book, they have, they just have no, idea. all of a sudden you've just given them a new character. They have no idea where this character came from. It just came out of nowhere. And it takes them a while to even catch up if they even do. So that is my treatise on character names. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I could think of a number of things, a, a number of situations where having the chart would have made would have made a difference in my mind. I did want to talk about one thing really quickly related to, to character names, and that is in choosing the names. I've, I've seen this before in books, and I mentioned earlier that that uh, series of short novels, and the character names the, for the two primary characters are both, both of the names evoke uh, a sense of something that describes the character. And I was curious what your thoughts are about that kind of a uh, a name, a name selection process. Me, it it seems almost a, too cute. Um, so the male, the male name, the male lead is named Finnegan Church, and you know the church sort of represents um, steadfast, uh, dependable, moral, and that's the way the guy is. And the woman's name is Annie Summers, and she's always described as sunny, bright, happy, and so. It's obvious that the choice of the names was obviously intentional. I'm curious what your thoughts are on something like that. Okay. I am of two minds on it. 
One is that doing it that way, you do risk a reader reaction such as yours of like, it's too cute. It's, it's almost cheesy. It's too cute, right? Um, however, studies have been shown that names are highly influential in affecting personality. So, for example, when you have someone whose last name is Church, you're going to find a higher than higher than statistical probability of 50-50 that they will somehow end up in the clergy. Um, when you have someone whose last name is Carpenter, there's a higher than average statistical pro probability that they will end up somehow in the trades. Um, I didn't make this up. It's been, studies have been done. It, it, it exists. And it likely has something to do with the way that we are so easily influenced. Our, our, the human brain is just terrifyingly easy to manipulate. And sometimes <laughs> we manipulate ourselves. And, and names have a lot to do with that. It, it could be because of the way that people treat us based on our name. I mean, I don't know all the factors that go into it. I don't think anybody knows. They just know that here is the outcome of it. So to see that type of thing in a book doesn't make me go, oh, come on. But that's because I'm aware of the research. For somebody who's not aware of the research, it might feel like, yeah, that's just too cute by half. Um, I... For me, names are really more of, I see them as a utility, something that needs to get done um, and that I'm looking for clarity and simplicity and, and mem memorability. Um, the, the more books I get into, the harder it gets to name things, because especially in a series, because not only are you trying to avoid similarities between the names that exist on the page in front of you, you're trying to avoid similarities between previous characters. So I already have Michael. I can never have another Michael in my books. I've got a Miles. I can never have another M name for a lead character in my books. I've got, um, you know, once you start looking at last names, you start eliminating things. And so... Um, for me, I, if only I had the leeway to be so clever with names, I don't like, for me, it's how can I keep this as clear, as simple and as easy and still have that name feel like it belongs to that character. That's hard enough at, on its own as it is without then also trying to be cute. So if you've got the bandwidth to do the cuteness, go for it, I guess, um, I personally would not ever call a, lot, a character with a last name Church just because of the potential imagery it could bring in. Like for me, so much of writing is about image, visuals and emotion and creating mood and atmosphere. I wouldn't want to uh, interrupt that with words on the page that contradict what I'm trying to get at. So even though church is only a last name in this story, it still creates a visual image. And I would find that visual image interruptive. Um, I would find the emotional component of that image interruptive as well in the process of creating 
visual uh, mental movies. Uh, you know, the words, the, it, would, it would be counterproductive for me and the way that I write to have that word showing up on the page over and over and over again because it would be interrupting everything else. So when I'm going after names, uh, I guess without even realizing it until this conversation, I'm going after something that doesn't carry with it its own emotional baggage, its own emotional weight, because I'm going for something that's going to create as little disturbance to the overall uh, objective as possible. Interesting. All right. Well, good. I have one PS that I have to add. We are currently in the process of trying to go back through all of these podcasts and break out the subjects so that because when we discuss things in these episodes, sometimes they go all over the map. And for somebody who's coming to the show looking for practical advice, um, the show titles and the little bit of show notes isn't enough for them to specifically find everything related to one specific subject. And so with the help of some amazing volunteers who are donating their listening skills and their time, we're trying to break down the podcast into much smaller chunks so that we can make the material available, indexable. I do eventually want to use it as the basis for an actual writing program. Um, if something like that interests you, if you would be willing to donate your time, um, if you would like to be involved, please let me know. Uh, we have, this is a enormous, enormous undertaking and it's all falling on the shoulders of a small group of people. If we had even three, four more people willing to uh, get involved, then we could move it along that much faster. So if you are a regular podcast listener, if you've enjoyed this material, if you've ever gone back and thought, wow, uh, that subject was helpful, but I can't really remember what podcast it was in, what episode it was in and where in the episode, and you wish you had an easy way to find it, here's your chance to make that happen. So just contact me. Um, my email address is contact at taylorstevensbooks.com. And I would love to hear from you. And I can send you a document that basically gives you all the details of what it is we're looking for, what it would entail, and put you in contact with the amazing person who is managing all of this for me and keeping the project moving forward. So that's my little PS to this episode. Very good. And with that being said, thank you very much for listening. See you guys next week.